You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on demand platform you can watch anywhere. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Here's what's coming up on this edition of My Life in Four Trades. Here I am looking out my window at the Sears Tower. I'm sitting literally on top of an exchange. I'm like, guys, go home. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen here. Who knows? I mean, there could be a thousand planes in the air for all we know. And the market had not yet opened. And I knew what we had on position-wise. But, you know, at that point, you know, you're thinking about your life. And, you know, your position is like, who cares? You know, if we blow out, we blow out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Noel Smith, the Chief Investment Officer for Convex AM. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Noel Smith. Noel is managing partner and CIO of hedge fund Convex Asset Management, uh, a veteran options trader. His career spanned from the pits of the Chicago Board Options Exchange to being managing partner and CIO of the prop trading firm Third Millennium and Venture Capital, where he was responsible for providing seed funding for high-frequency trading firm Getco, which went on to become a major U.S. market maker. So he's he's got a lot of experience that we're going to try to weigh on today. Hi, Noel. Welcome. Thanks for having me today. It, it's great to have you. Before we jump into your trades, um, give us a little bit of background. Uh, you know, Where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid? So I'm from Chicago, and I grew up knowing about the Board of Trade and, and the Options Exchange, and I never really had anybody that was you know, a contact there. Like A lot of other people that I knew had a, a relative, a dad, or whatever else that worked at the Merck or the Board of Trade. And um, so I was always aware of this thing. It's like you know, growing up in Cupertino, you know about Apple, yeah. but uh, you know, unless you know somebody that works at Apple, it's just this giant building down the street. Um, so I'm from Chicago and that's my background. And, you know, there was just a lot of finance in the city at the time where I grew up. And it was always just a very interesting thing to me. Yeah. Were you good at math and numbers? Did that kind of interest you? You know, what what were you like or what were you involved in as a as a child growing up? So I've always had a knack for science and math. Uh, I was a biochemistry major. My intention was to be a surgeon. I worked in a surgical ward. I worked in neuroscience research. I worked in you know, subatomic nuclear physics in college. Uh, I did a lot of science-y type stuff, but I did not work in finance. So when I first started, you know, I didn't know what time the stock market opened or closed. I didn't know what the NASDAQ was. Um, you know, name it. I didn't know it. And uh, so I had to learn a lot of that stuff as an adult. Mm. And I had some exposure to it in college, but my main focus was science and, you know, complicated stuff. 
Yeah, I, I like how you just throw out subatomic nuclear. <laughs> the, rest, the rest of us are like, what? Um, so, so, you know, a buddy, a buddy of mine was working at Fermilab, and that's actually what uh, got me interested. So he took me on a, a tour, you know, this is where we we bust atoms. I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. So that spurred me. And he was older than me, so I had the luxury at that point to kind of, you know, take those that course material during college. Yeah. Um yeah, it feels like, and and maybe there is some corollary we'll circle around at the end because it kind of feels like busting atoms. It feels like so much is in flux right now, and and you know we're all trying to figure it out. That it does feel like a little bit of a science experiment. But how did you end up making your way into finance? So you knew about it, but you were kind of on this science track. What shifted you over to the finance lane? So it was very logical. I didn't even really know uh, that I was going to do that. Um, I was uh, planning on attending medical school. I had to defer my enrollment for a year. And then a buddy of mine said, um, a buddy of mine who's making good money said, hey, do you want to be a stockbroker? And I said, I don't know what that is, um, but he's making good money. So once that job was explained to me, which is basically, you know, calling up strangers and asking them to invest in whatever your firm tells you to tell them to invest, um, that was something that I did. And I, I did really well my first year out of college, relatively speaking. And, um, you know, just the calculus starts changing, right? And when you start mm-hmm. thinking to yourself, well, I've made now as my first year out of college what I would make as a doctor, you know, 10 years from now, you know, you just can't ignore that. So I started you know, pushing more and more toward finance. And then the next iteration was meeting people in the options world. And as a stockbroker, your pay is very linear to your effort. So the more you work, the more you make. And as an options trader, it's not like that. The smarter you work, the more you can make or lose. And uh, so that was very appealing to me that I didn't have this, um, uh, if, I, if I didn't work all of the time as a broker, I felt lazy. So consequently, I worked seven days a week and I worked till 10 p.m., you know, five days a week. And as an options trader, I thought, you know, I could chill really after 40, 50 hours a week and still feel you know, like I'm doing something positive. So that was an interesting thing for me. And it was also just uh, uh, an interesting, complicated world. So I gravitated toward it once I started meeting a few people in that world. So let's jump into your trades. And your first trade is one of your best. And that's being a seed investor in Gecko in 1999. So set the stage for us because I, I think we're going to hop around a little bit because it sounds like you, you've you moved out of options or you've moved beyond options at this time to start dabbling in, in the VC world as well. But tell us what's going on in your life at this time. Set the scene for us. You know, it, it's like a lot of things. It's a combination of just being at the right place at the right time. Call that luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the confluence of events. So before college and after high school, I was in the military. And what I worked on was satellite microwave communication systems. So what uh, Getco really was, is an electronic version of floor trading using systems. And I had a knowledge of systems and I had a knowledge of trading. And the nexus of those two things were, it allowed me to decide that to be investable. So one of the founders of Getco worked for my my firm and we lost a bunch of money in long-term capital Thai bot Russian ruble crisis, like 97 or something like that. And um, he had come to us and said, you know, what's going on? And I said, well, you know, you're not fired, but we don't have any money. So if I were you, I'd quit. And, but you know, you don't have to quit. (laughs) So uh, he kind of came back with another guy and said, Hey, we'd like to start this company and we'd like some money. So we looked at the merits of the deal and decided to go for it. And that was the the genesis of Gecko. 
which is amazing. By the way, 1999, it's so interesting because it was a really pivotal time, right? Everyone was worried about Y2K, which sounds hilarious to say now, but it was really, it was a really big deal. And it was sort of the beginning of, um, there were, there were sort of early roots, but this whole revolution that was going to come from electronic trading, electronic, everything really was really sort of at that tipping point. Were you aware of that? You know, were you kind of plugged into the big changes that were happening? And did you see where the industry was going? Yeah. Um, well, everything becomes more efficient. So I, when I started trading, it was fractions and then fractions became smaller and then fractions became decimals. And then, you know, the idea of communicating with another person uh, by voice, either in a pit or on a phone, it just is obvious that it's going to get quicker and faster and tighter for the customer. So meaning that, you know, if you wanted to trade a hundred options in the nineties, you would do it in a fraction and you would do it. It would take some period of time. So just the logical progression that it would be more efficient, faster and easier for the customers and cheaper, just as obvious. So when that was happening, you know, we wanted to participate in that, it, despite it, despite what, what we wanted to do, that was just happening. It was just obvious. Mm-hmm. So that was something we wanted to uh, to have our hand in. And what is for for people who are familiar? What is Getco? You know, why did that end up being such a smart trade and such a smart investment for you? So it was basically the the evolution of what was called uh, raise trading at the time, which is really just um, electric versions of you know, floor trading. So say if you're a floor trader and you have a, a market in, I don't know, Apple options, Apple wasn't that big back then, by the way, it's, it's huge now, but Apple was at the precipice of bankruptcy in the nineties. But say you have, you know, a dollar bid on the screen versus a dollar 50 offer. Um, well, you could say, well, I will, I will buy these for a dollar for up to, you know, 50 options. Just I'm there. So you can send these to me uh, automatically and then I will buy them. And so high frequency trading in stock and options is different. But so in Gecko's main business was stock, not options. Um, but it is just a way of saying whatever is out there already with the marketplace, I will do an electronic version of that same thing. And then it just happens faster and faster and faster. And the, the quicker it happens and the more people that participate, it, those spreads just become more and more narrow each time. Hmm. Did you kind of think, wow, this is such a good idea. Why hasn't anyone else done it yet? Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't, I didn't invent Gecko. I was just an investor and the guys that did it, um, were the, the brains behind it, but the success of it, you know, blew me away. I, I have invested in many companies and a lot of them went to zero and I thought all of them were good ideas. So I don't have like this, you know, this genius view of the world where I can just pick all the winners. Um, it was more just like, you know, I had a several opportunities. I took advantage of some of them. And really one of them was a home run and others failed. But uh, the the success of high-frequency trading and really all of that stuff. And high-frequency trading is an incredibly complex thing. It is up there with rocket science. I mean, there are so many things that make a high-frequency trading firm successful. And there are so many things, you know, so many thousand other things that make it unsuccessful. Um, but yeah, I was very surprised by it and the, the amount of money that was able to be generated by firms, either like Gecko or firms, you know, or Gecko was astounding to me. Yeah. What was your takeaway from that trade? I mean, do you just feel like grateful that you had the opportunity or was there something in that, that you, you took forward with you for some of the other VC work that you did? 
You know, it reminds me of a lot of other things where you have people that have such an unbelievably narrow niche. And there are a lot of guys that are, you know, genetically much more intelligent than I am. And they were so good at so many things, but they just had no awareness. And that's actually, you know, I'm not trying to, to plug my hedge fund, but that is kind of why I wanted to launch a hedge fund because I knew that there's this uh, vertical knowledge that is required to really run money that requires um, proficiency in high-frequency trading, mid-frequency trading, you know, macro understanding. And it's all of these things that I think, if, in other words, if you're a macro trader and you have no idea how high-frequency trading works, you're going to get terrible fills and your, your, your performance will suffer. Conversely, if you're a high-frequency trader and you have no awareness of macro trading, you know, yeah, you'll do your high-frequency thing, but at some point you're like, wait, why are interest rates moving? I have no idea what this even means. What does this mean for oil? Why is oil moving? I mean, there's just so many things that dovetail into other things. You know, it's like the human organism, right? You know, I'm talking to you right now, but you know, within our conversation, we have eyeballs, we have ears, and within that, we have the cells, and within those, we have the you know the organelles within those cells. It just goes down and down and down, and all of it matters. It's so interesting because I talk to people a lot now who'll be like, "Oh, I only look at technicals. I don't really care about why things are happening. I just follow price action." It sounds like you completely disagree with that. Or I'm strictly in crypto. I don't really pay attention to macro. Or I'm in macro. Don't care about crypto. Think it's crazy. Can't value it. Like it sounds like you don't really adhere to that. I totally disagree. Um, there are merits to all of those, things, like technical trading, right? You can say something like. Well, when barometric pressure changes, I can predict reasonably what's going to happen with the umbrella prices. Well, when a barometric pressure changes, you know, you think a storm is going to come in and therefore the chance of rain increases. And, you know, yeah, umbrella prices might go up. There is a mathematical and quantitative reasoning behind technical analysis. If everyone is down 10% and some people have to de-risk down 10%, it's going to create a uh, disturbance on the chart. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the chart is like this, you know, predictive thing. It is more of a reflection of what is happening. That's new price discovery. Price is the ultimate arbiter. You know, uh, like look at Tesla. I never bought Tesla and regrettably so, but it doesn't mean it didn't go up. Of course it went up. It's a huge, uh, it's a huge thing. So if you say I'm only a uh, fundamental guy, then there's, there's no reason you would buy Tesla. If you're only a technical guy, technical guy, um, then maybe you would buy Tesla for these other different reasons. But those two things are way more intertwined than a lot of people maybe initially realize. Yeah. And then with crypto, crypto is is just another version of money, right? So if you have no dollars, then you can buy no crypto. If you have, you know, all these things are related. So to say that I only focus on, you know, Solana, okay, fine. But yeah, you still have to eat sandwiches that are not purchased with Solana. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I think we're, we're seeing that right now for those who are kind of, um, you know, in their silo so much. So, so yes. many cross currents are influencing everything right now. I mean, Raul just said it is such a macro moment that you do have to kind of plug it all in together to get an understanding. I totally agree. I think everything is intertwined on some level. You know, the earlobe is connected to the toe bone at some level. So your second trade ranks amongst your worst, and that is uh, the year 2001. And we're actually going to get a two for two trades, but around the common theme of what was a really, really tough year. And the first is shorting airline puts ahead of 9-11. So, you know, you're, it sounds like, you know, you're coming off this fantastic investment in Gecko. It wasn't that long ago. Um, so what's, you know, what's happening around you at the time you put on this trade? What, what made you look at airlines in that way? 
Sure. Well, just to be complete in the gecko trade, um, we didn't know and for years that it was making a lot of money. Um, it took a long time for that to play out. So it's not like you put it on, poof, it went up. You know, it's an investment in a company and it took years for that to bear out. Anyway, so regarding the airline trade, um, you know, as a market maker, you see flow that comes into the marketplace and somebody keeps buying puts, buying puts, you know, and if you're buying, um, if they're buying puts in Delta Airlines, America Airlines, whatever, you know, there is a certain volatility that's associated with these puts and you think to yourself, okay, well, this is high, I'll sell some. And they come in again and buy more and they come in again and buy more at, you know, each iteration is higher and higher and more, you know, what you think are good prices. And, you know, so we kept selling these things, you know, not to infinity, but a lot. And, you know, we had no idea 9-11 was going to happen. And, um, you know, it was also coming off of a year that was already down. The beginning of 2001 was difficult. The NASDAQ stocks have been getting hammered. Um, and it was a very puzzling trade. So we could see ahead of time, there's like, there's no way that all of these airline puts are so fat for no reason. And so we did have an inkling that something was coming around. You know, 9-11, we had no idea, especially the morning. Well, out. no one could have. So why do you no. think that was it, was, it was sort of like a false signal. Do you, did you ever figure out why that was happening prior to, prior to you know, 9-11 actually taking place? Well, I mean, common sense would say that the people that orchestrated 9-11 were buying puts, they wanted to profit from their actions. So wow. um, I think that the people that we sold puts to, that we lost money to, were the people that orchestrated it or had knowledge. Wow. So that's that's a really big concept because, you know, mm-hmm. we, we tend to think of these people as sort of these individual, this group of sleeper cell, um, certainly connected to a larger terrorist network. But, you know, uh, the idea that they were sophisticatedly front running the event in the markets totally. is not something that's widely discussed. No, they totally were. Bin, bin Laden's from a wealthy construction family, or was, um, you know, the, he was a very wealthy individual. And the idea that, you know, nobody in his orbit wouldn't have the idea to do this uh, is, I think, is naive. I think that they totally did it. And I think that uh, that is exactly what happened. Do I have any proof? Of course not. It's speculation. But, I mean, who else would pay, you know, why would you buy dollars for $1.50? Nobody would do that unless you know that they're going to go to $2 or, in this case, $10. Right. And airlines aren't a place that people usually do spec. I mean, we're not talking about sort of, you know, some future forward tech company that I mean, you could argue exactly. now with electric vehicles. A lot of people are speculative around that. And there's a whole meme. Airlines aren't that kind of business. Exactly. They're very cyclical business. They they have a hard time running profits in good times. It's not the kind of place that people look to 10x something. That's why there was so much gearing in them. Uh, the the profits were enormous, and you know we were one market maker of amongst you know many dozens, and we lost a lot of money, and I'm sure other people lost more. Mm. So it was the only logical thing for these rational for these trades would, would be for them to be a rational actor and for these actors to have foresight. Wow. So do you remember from a I'm gonna, it's going to take me a while to digest that, and I and I will, and I don't move to, mean to move on quickly from it because that's a really really big concept. But from a financial point of view, do you remember where you were when the planes hit the World Trade Center? Do you remember what was going through your mind, knowing totally. that you had all this exposure? Oh, I mean, so when when I first turned on the TV, I didn't have a computer at home, right? So you have to think about time and place, right? So I didn't have a... Con- I know, it's incredible It's incredible right. to say that, but people really forget how we worked back then. Right. So in, 2000, in 2001, my first uh, awareness of the marketplace 
wasn't my cell phone because I didn't have one. Uh, and it wasn't a computer because I didn't have one at home. It was the TV. So I turned on CNBC as I'm, you know, brushing my teeth and doing all my morning routine stuff. And uh, there was an office tower fire and it was a World Trade Center. And the, the news had reported this as just a, an office fire, you know, not a big deal. Nobody was hurt. And, you know, people were evacuating. It was all very sensible, unfortunate, and it's going to be a headache for traffic. That was sold, was sold that morning. By the time that it, I drove from my house in Chicago to the exchange where I worked, um, the second plane, and it had been speculated that a plane had hit. Then the second plane had hit sort of on live TV. And oh, oh, it it was, yeah, it was because I was at the exchange. It was yeah. at the New York Stock Exchange. It, so, it happened live, and that immediately changed. Yeah. And everyone saw it happen. So, what went well, the thought from it being a little passenger plane that missed? Exactly. Got, you know, something happened. He had a heart attack. Everyone in in that instant understood exactly what was going on. So, you know, here I am looking out my window at the Sears Tower. I'm sitting literally on top of an exchange. I'm like, guys, go home. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen here. And, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, there could be a thousand planes in the air for all we know. And, um, you know, I don't know. And the market had not yet opened. And I knew what we had on position wise. But, you know, at that point, you know, you're thinking about your life. And, yep. you know, your position is like, who cares? You know, if we blow out, we blow out. But the idea that we blew out, that we would blow out was 100% on the table. And, um, you know, we didn't know if the market was going to go down, you know, 90% or whatever. Yeah. So uh, the market didn't open and it stayed, stayed closed for, I think, a week. And, um, you know, we lost a lot of money and I didn't know if we would be insolvent. But the trading was so good between September and November, we were actually to make that money back and then some. We actually made money on balance in 2001 despite losing money in Enron and losing money in tech stocks and losing money to 9-11. But you have to bear in mind, like, what happened after 9-11? Well, the market reopened. And there was just so much opportunity. Yeah. And if you were in a position to capitalize on that, that opportunity, and we were, um, you know, it, the trading was fantastic. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. Was it, was it opportunity in everything? Was it, yes. you know, I, there was a lot going on and there was a lot of goodwill at that time too. Yes. I mean, I remember, you know, people like competitors, housing competitors, mm -hmm. and, you know, there wasn't a lot of um, sharkish trade behavior in the beginning, you know, in terms of firms who were struggling to keep the doors open and stuff. So there were, but but was it stock opportunity? What Where was the opportunity? Um, it was opportunity and options, which is my main focus. Uh, the spreads right. were so wide and there was nobody really doing business. It's not true. Right. There was fewer people doing business. There were fewer. Fewer. Yeah. Um, and so if you were there and you were solvent and you were able to, you know, either respond to an IM, answer the phone or whatever. You just, ha you kept the business going. Yeah, if exactly. It was, it was, yeah. If, you know, if, if yeah. your little banana stand was still standing, then, you know, you could sell yeah. bananas and that's really all it was. Yeah. Um, it was not like yeah. we were any better than anybody else. We were just still alive. And, um, yeah. you know, we didn't know that when the market was closed. That was, I was totally up in the air. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. I remember that. Well, you know, it's interesting because you said it, there was so much opportunity, but I also remember 2001 just being this relentless, like just 
bad news, difficult news. I mean, I lived in New York City at the time yeah. too, so you know it was the heaviest place in the world to be. But um, Enron, I I almost forgot until you put this in your trade that that was the same year. Yeah. I just remember at the end of two thousand one, just being just mentally and physically exhausted. But Enron was another disaster on a fragile market. Um, set set that trade up for us. How did you? So you you were holding a lot of Enron stock. How did you end up with all that Enron stock? What was it about that trade that interested you in the first place? So the, uh, nothing. So there's nothing special about Enron. The ticker was ENE. It could have been NEE or whatever. You know, Enron was just a ticker like all tickers are to me. I don't really care about, you know, Google or Google or Twitter. To me as a market maker or as a market taker, I'm just trying to see where you know, where was an opportunity for us to make money. But um, you know, Enron was a big company. It had been doing really well for a long time. I think it was the ninth largest market cap in the country, something like that. I mean, it was a substantial company. And the idea that it was a wholesale fraud was just a little too too a little too far fetched, you know. Yeah, maybe they had some problems like a lot of companies do, but nobody thought it was just a scam. And um, the reason we had Enron is because of the paper. Like as a market maker and as a market taker, you look at what else is going on in the marketplace and then you you use that information to try to inform your own trades. So, you know, I don't remember the exact prices. So anybody with a, a Google can probably beat me up on this, but it's like 60 bucks or something like that. And then, you know, the stock went down to, you know, 50 And then, you know, well, what happened, and this was the reason we lost so much money in, in Enron, is... Big smart paper would come in and buy tens of thousands of options, which they never did. And if they did do, they were never wrong. So it's just like if you know, it's you know, eighteen ninety, and JP Morgan walks in the room and like buy all that. And you're like, I'm not going to bet against that guy. And it's kind of like that, you know. So you know, you're out there, mm-hmm. and Goldman comes in and buys fifty thousand out of the money calls, and you you know, you've got this Enron position. Do you short it then? You know, after what some of the smartest paper on the planet is going really big in really risky trades? No, you, you ride it. And then it goes down to 30. And then they come in and buy 100,000 calls. <laughs> it's so interesting because while this is going on and you're watching the smart money big paper come in, there were news reports that were, you know, some pu- some reporters really pushing the story as early as I think it was February, March that year. Um, Bethany McLean started to make some noise about it, which gained mm-hmm. her a lot of notoriety and a lot of and a lot of pain too. I remember talking to her. We had her on talking about it. So we were all starting to cover Enron. And journalists were asking, smart journalists were asking some hard questions and looking at this and saying, "I don't know, something's not adding up here." And yet, you're seeing behind the scenes all of this yeah. money coming in supporting Enron. That's so interesting. Isn't it, it was. It was interesting because you know, and this is kind of the instructive part of it, which is at what point do you cut your losses and. We ended up never cutting our losses. And Enron is an interesting trade in the, uh, in the sense that we actually wrote it to hard zero. Um, because at some point, it's like five bucks. You're like, well, five bucks, forget it. You know, it's like, you know, there's, if it goes to 12 and it go, or, you know, I'll, I'll kill myself if it goes, you know, <laughs> if it goes right, if it goes yeah. right back. But, um, you know, they, it got a lot of press and we put a lot of effort into it, and especially in Chicago, because Jeff Skilling was the brother of Tom Skilling, which is our local weatherman. And um, so all this stuff is going on and we kept trying to see, okay, where do we get out of this thing? And usually if you're trying to figure out what to do with a trade, the paper can be very useful. And this, at this time, the paper was very strong and very wrong. And that's pretty much the main reason we stuck with the trade. In fairness, that same data set or knowledge of the marketplace made money for a lot of other trades. So, 
you know, this is a unique situation where, you know, stocks down 70%, you know, in, they come in and buy, you know, another hundred thousand calls that are, you know, 20% out of the money. You know, it's, it's, it's always a difficult decision. And of course, you know, it can go to zero, but that was one of those ones that we did ride to zero and lost, lost a lot of money. Yeah. Do you, did that make that, did that experience make you more risk averse or make you question the wisdom of smart money? So this is the funny thing about being an old grizzled trader is that, you know, you, you have a guy who's like, you know, 27 at, you know, XYZ prop firm and he's only sold puts, you know, (laughs) and he's just done nothing but make money. You know, he's up 10,000% and you're up 10 and you're like, ah, this is maddening, you know? And then at one point, you know, bam, he, he blows out or she blows out and it, you know, then they end up going to a different firm. So when you are an experienced trader and you have this spectrum of knowledge, it does make you more grizzled. You know, it's like you're the, you know, it's like you've been in, in 10,000 relationships. Of course, you're going to be more you know, skeptical of the next one. And sometimes it hurts you because, you know, there's opportunity there that mm. a, a more naive trader or a less experienced trader might really press that you might not. So it cuts both ways. Yeah. You know, sometimes I, I, I lose less than other people, but sometimes I don't make as much as other people. But you survive to fight in another day. That's true. That is true. <laughs> Which at the end of the day <laughs> matters a lot. Yeah, but Enron was, was an internal one that we, we actually argued about it. And we only argued about two trades. It was like, you know, Kmart Sears when that got taken over and Enron, where I was like, let's sell. The paper is wrong. And my other two partners were like, you know, we think that we should hold this or we think we should, you know, continue with this. And I, I gave in. And I'm not saying they were dumb because they weren't, um, but we ended up all being collectively wrong on that one. Yeah. It's also worth pointing out, you know, hindsight makes it seem obvious, but the idea that a company like Enron yeah. could have so much fraud within and and have been able to go on like that for so long. I mean, you know, there wasn't a day that we didn't talk about accounting back then because we had WorldCom. I mean, it was the right. beginning of many. Arthur Anderson failed. I mean, it was just like incredible. Exactly. Uh and so it became obvious later on what was going on and, you know, m- many more people were aware, but it was shocking at the time. Yeah. And, and I had friends Shock- at Arthur Anderson shocking. and, you know, we were just, we were all surprised. I'm like, okay, is this really systemic fraud and is everybody in on it? Kind of. Yeah. And yeah. all those things had to line up for the stock to go to zero and they did line up and the stock did go to zero. Yeah. A big five accounting firm for that to fail. It was like too big to fail. It was it was really unthinkable. And then, of course, we would come to understand there was a lot that we there's no such thing, really, when things when the water starts going out about being too big to fail. And of course, you were actively trading and your third trade is during another one of those periods when the unthinkable happened almost every day. That was during the great financial crisis. Um, But this is one of your best trades, and that's being long volatility during the great financial crisis. So I'm really interested as we head into that. So what sort of set you up for that trade? And did some of your earlier successes and failures inform your decision-making around this? So the last part of your question is yes, for sure. I know all of the prior experience that you have informs your current judgments. Okay. So totally yes. So the idea that housing was overpriced, uh, things like that, you know, I feel, I feel like a lot of people like to say that nobody knew, you know, housing was overpriced. I, I think that's total nonsense. You know, it's just like the dot-com bubble. Nobody knew that pets.com was a scam. Nonsense. Everybody knew that pets.com was a scam. Um, but it was also going from, you know, 10 to a hundred. So a lot of people wrote it. Um, and you know, there is just th- this idea that everyone um, 
was just oblivious to the risks in 2000, really 2005 is when it really started to heat up amongst the trading community. And then it kept going up in 2006. And, you know, at some point you start to realize, well, this is just, it's too much. And then as the cracks started to, to, to crack, you know, people were, you know, the, 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 the global financial crisis went down and then it bounced and then it went down really hard. And that, that bounce is where we really loaded up on volatility um, because it, it gotten cheap Nothing had materially changed, and this is a situation where the paper was, um, you know, just wrong, and we were able to take the other side of that paper. And we were, and it's not like we we thought that you know the market was going to go to zero, or whatever else. But you know, when you have a bunch of options, you collect what's called gamma, and with that gamma, you can still hedge off your risk on a day to day basis. And then you go to sleep with really no position on, and you wake up with a, a huge short. You cover your short, and then rinse and repeat. And that is part of the way we made money. And then at some point you stop buying your, your hedges because they just keep going down and you let them ride. You know, so you go to bed with a giant Delta and you wake up with a bigger Delta and you don't cover. And that's how it worked. So being long gamma, long volatility in a situation like that, pretty much every major crash that I've experienced, being long volatility has been very good. Most vol people do well in volatile times. Yeah. Do you think that it is because they pay closer attention to that part of the market? Do they? What do they see that others don't? Or is it just tumultuous and they just you just know that, that a lot of things are going to break and you're going to benefit? Like, why doesn't everybody else see that? Why doesn't everybody else get in on that trade? You know, the, the information that is publicly available and with, if you are being willing to buy data, pretty much everybody has the same information. So the idea that you are able to beat Susquehanna or Jump or Citadel to, uh, you know, the vol game is, again, naive. It's not going to happen because, you know, the people that are running those desks are very informed, very smart, and they have systems to, to beat you. Um, so there is some level of, you know, there is the knowable and there's the not knowable, right? And once you understand that the data set that is finite, is already known, is probably priced into the, the options market or the stock market. And then there is the, the part that is not knowable, that is non-consensus. Um, that's the trade. Because if you're just doing the same thing everybody else is doing, you know, you, you're not going to make any money, right? It's a wash or a loss. Um, you have to do something that's out of consensus. So you, if the, uh, the perceived fair value, fair value in an option is 50 vol and you pay 53, well, the person that sold it to you thinks that they're making money and they're professionals, so they're probably right in aggregate. So you have to do something non-consensus. And in, in our situation, what we did is instead of hedging a lot of those deltas, we wrote them. And that's mm -hmm. one of the main reasons we made money. I think you just touched on something really important, and this is the sort of holy grail that everyone chases, because everyone knows there's a lot of information out there and you can listen to people and sometimes there's you know two choices you can make, either looking at, we're, we're in that yes. right now, right? When people are talking about inflation commodity versus recession and, you know, rates are going lower, they're kind of two camps, but it, they they uh, they walk you through their, their thinking about why they, it's figuring out what's that unknowable. Yeah. What's the trade? That that puts yeah. the trade, that forces you or, or catalyzes you into that trade. It's like a spidey sense. Like, what is it that gave you the confidence to let those those positions ride overnight. You know, Spidey Sense is wisdom. The more you do something, whether it be hit a golf ball, slash a snowboard, um, whatever, pick a category. The more you do it, the more you have this difficult to describe 
amorphous knowledge. And I just chalk it up as wisdom. Yeah. And sometimes your wisdom is right. Sometimes your wisdom is wrong. And if your data isn't complete or mistaken, then you're just wrong, wrong. But that is that breadth of knowledge allows you to identify data that are non-consensus because the data that is consensus is not actionable, right? It's priced into the marketplace. Everybody knows what Jay Powell's looking at. Everyone knows they're looking at CPI on Wednesday. Everybody knows the same thing. Every, everything else, everybody else knows that's on Twitter. Um, there is the way you digest this information and you figure out, okay, well, if, you know, storms coming in, everyone's going to buy umbrellas. Well, I might want to buy gloves or galoshes or something else. There are other second and third order derivatives that you have to be able to figure out. And one of the main reasons I love options is because there are these non-linearities to them. So in other words, if they, they'll play ball within a certain band and they'll just maybe bounce around and do nothing for a long period of time. But when they break, they break mm-hmm. so hard and so fast so as to make people make totally irrational financial decisions. And if you're there to, to trade with them, you can benefit. And so if they, if they have to get out at any price, you know, if you have a, a million dollar house and you have to sell it in, in 10 minutes, that's way different than having to sell it in 10 months. You know, if you have, if you're, if you have a million dollar house in a community of a million houses, well, you're probably not going to lose that much money if you have time to sell it. But if you have to sell your house in 10 minutes, Maybe you get 300 grand, you know, you get whatever the guy that has that money on him right now has, that's it. You know, and if you have to sell it for $10 and you really need that $10, that's the trade. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. It's it's a sort of, by the way, I know some people have scored some good houses in the midst of really horrific divorces. <laughs> they needed to liquidate yeah. that house. And there are some people, some friends of mine who walked into a really good situation. So it does happen. But it's a, it's a sort of preemptive wisdom as opposed to a reactionary sort of lessons learned. It's it's taking the wisdom you have, it's somehow forecasting with it, right? Sort of making an assumption about something that's going to happen. Forecasting, what we do is we do with the, the change of change. And that's the easiest way to forecast things because I don't know what Paul is going to do at the FOMC. And if CPI comes in at 12%, you know, Paul is going to say, yeah, we're going to raise, you know, uh, 100 bips uh, at the end of the month or something like that. Um, but I don't know that any more than anybody else knows that. Um, but the difference is, is that when you have options, you know that there is this convexity to them. And then if you can put trades on that curve someplace, you know, slope of a line tangent to that curve, then you can make statistically more likely bets than just saying, I know what's going to happen in the future. Anybody can buy Apple or short Apple, but when the, in the options schema, the whole options chain, you can put better statistically better than average bets on. And maybe you're only getting a handful of a percent of edge in in this, or maybe you're diminishing your risk by that same factor. Mm. But that is why I gravitate toward options because to me, they are a risk mitigation tool as opposed to just this, you know, wild way to speculate on where Tesla is going to go on Tuesday. So it's interesting. This is going to bring us to your fourth and final trade, which is 
interestingly, a volatility trade. And that one that you're in right now, this year, 2022, which we know has been extremely challenging. And so far, it's one of your worst. Year's not over yet. So we're going to leave that an open-ended question. But what is it about this trade that's been so tough? So coming into 2022, um, you know, we were long vol. We, we are a long vol. And we actually took off almost all of our market risk at the beginning of the year. So if you said to me, you know, uh, hey, guess what? Um, it's January 3rd, 2022, and this is what's going to happen. Let's look at your book. Um, what's going to happen is the spies are going to go down 22%, NASDAQ's going to go down more, uh, you know, oil is going to go to 130, back down to 100, um, et cetera, all these things, right? And then I looked at my book and I said, okay, well, we have all these puts on. How's the book look? Great. This book is going to murder. And because uh, you're not really, you don't really have any directional risk on long. And you, what you really have is a, a long volatility downside position. And, you know, we're, we're, we're beating the market handedly, but the, the market is down a ton. And, you know, those puts have not performed anywhere near as well as I normally would have expected. So let's go back to our previous part, which is the wisdom. So having the trade on that I have on now has made money. Every other time we've been in a scenario like this, and now it's it's not losing money, but it's not making anywhere near as much as I would want. And volatility relative to other marketplaces like this has been very non-responsive. Mm. So there has not been this reach, this panic reach. You know, somebody has to sell a house in ten minutes or in a divorce or whatever else. There's been no divorces. There's been none of this panic buying of options, which is panic selling the other way around. So volatility can be very difficult sometimes. You know, I know as much about volatility as I think most people and the options that I purchased, I thought would do really well in this environment and they've been okay at best. And that underperformance is something we've spent, you know, a lot of time trying to figure out why and whatever else. And I have some answers to that and I understand why it, it hasn't worked out. But if we want to be objective about it and go back to the beginning of the year and say, okay, will this position pay you? I would have I would have said yes, and the answer has been no. Which is funny because it feels like it's been such a tumultuous, volatile year that you would have think. But I guess it's not playing out that way. The, what it feels like is different than when that, what's actually happening in the market. So why why is this disappointing? This performance? Why is it an outlier to what you've experienced before? It's going yeah. It's touching on what we said before, you know, when you're trading with a market maker like. Pick Citadel because they, everyone loves picking on Citadel. Um, when you're buying options from Citadel, there is a certain expectancy already priced into it. And in order for you to make money, you have to exceed what everyone already kind of collectively knows and understands. So if you know we're making a bet on uh, the, the the attendance of the ball game today, well, you think to yourself, okay, well, the stadium holds fifty thousand people, and you know there is some people aren't going to show up and whatever else. So if the mathematical top is fifty then, you know, I'll, I'll make a bet. And, you know, that's kind of the deal. It has to be about exceedance. Your bet has to exceed what the market makers or other market participants are already pricing into those options. And the, the vol of vol, the rate of change of volatility has not been swift enough, mm. swift enough, or the vol path has not been steep enough to really trigger those options, those downside put options to perform. And that is really the root of it. So this idea that there is, you know, panic or people need to, to really cover their their book um, just hasn't really happened. The, the the sell-off has been 
six months in the making, and there's been plenty of opportunity for you to re-engage. The market's gone up violently several times mm-hmm. for you to, to re-put on your shorts or get out of your longs, whatever. And it's been an overly, uh, overall, very orderly sell-off. So even though it's been painful, just from a Delta One standpoint, options have been okay. Yeah. And depending on where you strike them, are they at the money? So are they at the money for two weeks? Or are they at the money for two years? Probably better for the financial system that it's been orderly, but I guess not if you're if you're holding that position. Do you think there's something different going on this time? Well, I think that the pandemic really wiped out a lot of um, systematic vol sellers. You now you have guys that sell variant swaps, and that community's kind of been destroyed. And a lot of other of these people are in Feb 2018 um, when you know volatility really went crazy. So a lot of those players that come in and just as a business, sell vol, sell vol, sell vol. They've gotten so beat up, so they're not really a factor anymore. Mm. So some of those individuals or groups that suppress volatility are no longer there. So the, the, the base effects, the higher level in which we're starting from is definitely a factor. So, you know, if you start with a VIX of, you know, 25, you know, it's much harder for, you know, to really fake people out mm. because, you know, it's, it's already kind of priced in. So those, like, if you, if you go back to, you know, October, November last year, and you look at the six month forward volatility, it was already pretty high. And then if you go six months forward and you look into, you know, a few months ago in the spring, it was pretty much right there. So in other words, the, the VIX futures were pricing things pretty accurately. Yeah. I've been noticing that because no matter what we talk about and how strong, strongly people feel about it, I'm like, well, the VIX is kind of where it's sitting, where it's been, you know? Exactly. Um, how do you deal with doubt? Because, I mean, you mentioned in the Enron trade, um, you know, that, that you didn't all agree and you had a conversation about it. And I'm sure in many of these instances, when you're trying to look for the unknowable, there's always a bit of doubt about whether you're right. How do you, how do you handle that? I question every trade I ever do. Um, I Every time I do a trade, I th- try to think about whoever I'm trading with, how are they correct and how am I incorrect? So I don't really have like high confidence trades or these situations where like, this has just got to work this time. I never think that. Um, <laughs> or you know, the other way around, like, well, I just don't understand why this is going down. You know, using Enron as an example, I have no idea why Enron's going down, but it cost me a lot of money. So as a result of that, I just basically use math. And if I'm losing too much money, I breach a threshold, I'm out, which is why technical analysis sometimes works. Because if you look in aggregate, you know, down 5%, some people will de-risk. Down 12%, another different tranche of people will de-risk. And that what that does is it will be reflected in the stock price or index price, and you will see that on a chart. But that doesn't mean it's happening because the chart has met a certain threshold. It's more that, you know, if you started with a $100 million account and now you're down $85 million, now you need to just get out of some money so you can't go down to $65 million. And that will manifest on a chart. But that doesn't mean that the chart is prophesizing hmm. anything. It just means that, you know, you're seeing the actions of rational people, um, you know, display in a, in a price function. But to answer your question more specifically, I don't really handle doubt. I just sell if I'm losing money. Or if I sell, if, if I'm making money and it's reached another different threshold. You know, the fact that you have survived through, I mean, this is some, these are some huge events that we've been talking about just in these four trades. And, you know, as we established at the beginning, you've been, you, you've had such a long career. There are just thousands of them that probably you could think about. Has your style changed? Has your approach to markets, your trading style changed over the years? Um, everything changes all the time. It, it's always a little different. So 
you know, if, if you're driving on this infinitely long road, like a rally driver, right? There's always turns and trees and rocks, but somehow this road is just infinitely long. Um, yeah, the back has informed, you know, what you might do in the future, but if there's a new hairpin turn or a jump or a new tree in the middle of the road, you always have to figure something new out. Mm. Um, this year is a great example, which is why I thought it would be suitable to bring it up because if you just looked at every other major market drawdown and you said, Hey, Noel, should I buy, should I buy puts? Is this, is this a good trade? I'm like, yeah, it totally works. It works all the time. It's never not worked. Yet here we are in 2022 where puts are okay. Some puts have worked, but the really risky ones have worked. In other words, if you go out and buy, you know, two week dated puts that are 50 deltas or whatever, um, and you happen to catch the market as it's going down. Yeah, sure. You made money. But the idea that you bought, you know, a year hence or a six month hence, you know, 30 delta puts that are out of the money, Probably not, because by the time they got there, you've already been, you know, eaten by some theta. You know, your vega has hurt you a little bit, and you know, unless you just held them the whole time, you probably didn't make money. And so that's very topical because what's happening now is is you know causing us to evaluate our data sets. So is all the other data wrong? Is this one the right one, or is this one the wrong one, and all the other ones are right? So you have to figure out what is different, what is novel. And how do you change your models? Would, do you change your model based on what's happening now? Or do you somehow just blend it into the new data set and then you look at what's happening now and you make new, new decisions? And we have changed our book very recently as a result of some of this data. We've shifted some stuff out. We've taken some risk off and added other risk on. But you know, just to sit there and watch our, our options die as the market goes down is crazy. But it is what it is. That's what's happening. No, this has been a tremendous conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.